On today's episode of DPS, we're going to be talking about the strange non-death of neoliberalism and what the implications might be for the socialist movement today. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. In today's episode, we're going to take off from last week's really stellar episodes with Nicholas Kiersey. We talked about neoliberalism. What is it in 2019? Does it have any life left? And how does it impact our lives? Is neoliberalism, as some argue, everywhere? Is it in all things, in all people, at all times? Is everything indeed neoliberal? Or is it a highly contested terrain, wherein socialist politics may reign supreme? Today's guest has written a really fascinating article called Ruling the Interregnum, Politics and Ideology in Non-Hegemonic Times. We're going to be discussing the question of hegemony and interregnum in Italian Marxist and theorist Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci is a somewhat enigmatic figure on the socialist left. He is known in academic and political circles for very different things. Uh, the cultural turn of the 1980s somewhat bastardized Gramsci's thought, as we're going to discuss today, and took it into a highly culturalist direction. But my guest today is going to argue that there are political economic stakes involved in Gramsci's thought, and there are very serious political stakes in there as well that are relevant for today's activists, not only academics. Joining us today is Runa muller stahl he is a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen in the Department of Political Science, and we're going to talk about Gramsci and hegemony and world order and uh, neoliberalism as well. Of course, Runa, thanks for joining us on DPS. Thank you for having me. So in his prison notebooks when he was locked up in a fascist cell in Mussolini's Italy, Antonio Gramsci famously wrote, The crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. Now, I love that line so much. I almost named this podcast two and a half years ago. Something to do with morbid symptoms instead of Dead Planet Society. I don't know. I think, I think that would have been a slightly, more, um, <laughs> a slightly more depressing podcast name and perhaps a much more depressing podcast in general. What is it that attracted you to Gramsci, Runa, in your studies in, uh, in Copenhagen? And you, you yourself are a committed socialist, democratic socialist. You have done political work yourself. What is yeah. the, the, today's import for Gramsci and why should, we, why should we be talking about him for the next uh, two and a half, some odd hours? I think there are there are two two ways that Gramsci became uh, uh, became important. One one political and one uh, one theoretical. I think on the political side, I think his notion of uh, this war of position and um, ideological warfare, this way of thinking about politics, about politics as a sort of contracted struggle, helped me think about uh, how to, to to understand politics beyond the sort of revolutionary reformist dichotomy that a lot of us are grew up on the on the socialist left has been uh, basically yeah has have thought politics through and it's. I think at one point or another, quite some years ago, I thought that was an unhelpful way of thinking about it. But the question is then, how do you how do you do this? And I think Gramsci's way of thinking about this, building up positions of power within society, so that you're able to change other things later. I guess you know you call this non-reformist reforms when we're looking at the state, but there's of course there's also you know there's trade unions, there's uh, you know magazines, podcasts, other sources of organizations, other sorts of uh, you know intellectual, organizational power that can be built in society. So I think he's important there. And then there's also a more academic or, or technical side to it. As again, I'm a, I'm a political scientist trained originally as an, as an economic historian, and I've, I've dealt with economic ideas and the political importance of, of economic ideas for, uh, yeah, for a number of years. And I think I came into this as uh, sort of instinctively a Marxist, but at the same time, I didn't really find a lot of uh, a lot of resources in in the Marxist tradition for thinking about 
economic ideas. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you have this, uh, you know, ideas are only sort of superstructural phenomenon. What it's really about is like class strength and yada yada. Um, and so I think originally when I, when I started studying economic ideas and the sort of, you know, how they gain importance, I, I looked in a lot of other places, sort of non-Marxist institutional um, analysis, uh, discourse, all these sort of things. And I think Gramsci was the sort of uh, the person that helped me understand how these intellectual phenomena can have material importance, political importance, how they act together with the sort of uh, the forces of, of the material uh, material base. And I think Gramsci can help us to understand to, to deal with and understand economic ideas without falling into some of the traps of idealism or sort of uh, discourse-centered political science and sociology, whatever it is. So I think it's both of these things, and we'll probably cover a bit of bit of each today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Gramsci comes in to play here in, in a number of, of ways. I think for our present moment and for the moment that he lived in, I think it's one thing uh, yeah. that we must remember and, and center going forward as a lot of other writers have uh, over the past five to ten years, there's been a real renaissance in Gramscian thinking on the academic left and the socialist left. You've got people, people like uh, Peter Thomas uh, writing and reminding us that, you know, Gramsci was first and foremost uh, something of a Leninist, uh, yeah. which which is, you know, a, a highly uh, contested claim. But at the time, I think it was a necessary corrective against this kind of 1980s era, uh, you know, English lit cultural studies. Sorry to sorry to bag on my cultural studies brethren as much as I always do. But hey, you know, uh, they, they, there's people out there, they deserve it. Uh, the cultural studies sanitized uh, neoliberal version of Gramsci, wherein, you know, it was all about just influencing ideas and somehow that link that you just talked about that that links Gramsci's thought to, to political economy and political power was severed. And and so this this necessity to reintroduce that link that uh, that that um, inseparable tie of of Gramsci's thought about ideas and political economy, right? To bring that back together, and that's something that's been going on in Gramsci's studies for the past decade at least. In a really interesting and exciting way. So, so that's the, that's what we're trying to do today. We're trying to link the ideational, the ideas, the kind of theories, and the practice of of cultural dissemination, if you will, and link that up with with concrete, hardcore materialist political economy and real political consequence. Because the real the real claims of your piece that jump all the way ahead, and then we'll pull it yeah. back a little bit, as I always do in the opening here. The real stakes of your piece is to argue that we are in highly unsettled times and that what we do today, you and I and you listener and you listener and everyone out there, what we do today in a non-Pollyannish, non-rah-rah, very sober, serious way matters tremendously because we're in a moment of interregnum wherein uh, multiple hegemonic projects are vying for dominance and control over what will have become the next political, economic, social block to control, who knows, the next 40, 50 years or, or, or centuries, right? Um, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna lay all of that out piece by piece, as we always do on DPS. We're deep in the weeds. So let's dive right in. You're talking about theories of world order, essentially. This is your field. This is your terrain. This is what the article sort of covers. Talk to us a little bit about these theories of global order. What are they um, and why do they matter? And what are some of the more traditional uh, periodizations of, of, quote, world order going back uh, the last 200 some odd years? Yeah, it's um, again, when we're talking about world orders, we're we're in uh, the sort of the new Gramscian uh, tradition. Um, again, you, you mentioned uh, Stuart Hall and the whole culture, cultural analysis, uh, cultural studies tradition. Um, you can also have uh, Leclerc Mouffe as another way of reading Gramsci. But the tradition that I find myself in is uh, called the sort of the new Gramscian uh, tradition with uh, Robert Cox, uh, and, uh, a Canadian uh, mm -hmm. uh, international uh, relations theorist, Stephen Gill, some of the central uh, central people um, and 
They sort of used Gramsci's idea of, um, of hegemony. Of course, for Gramsci, hegemony was primarily a class-based analysis of, of a national context. You know, uh, he described how the bourgeoisie gained hegemony, gained cultural hegemony, and thereby gained the consent of the the dominated classes, peasants of the proletariat. Uh, but what uh, someone like uh, like Robert Cox did was to try to to internationalize this to say. We're not only talking about hegemony on a, on a national scale, we also have a sort of an international uh, hegemony. And, and actually, to have a functioning capitalist world economy, we need this sort of, we need this sort of world order. And this world order is, is often, uh, you could say, almost always uh, anchored in, hegem- in a hegemonic country. What, of course, we're, we're living through um, now is sort of a, a period of, a, of American hegemony. We've been in a period of American hegemony since Second World War, basically. Um, it's taken different forms. We can go into that. Before that, in uh, the 19th century, we had the British hegemony, the British Empire, as a sort of the anchor of, um, of the capitalist world order. Um, of course, when we're talking about hegemony here, it's again. It's not dominance in this sort of uh, simple term of being the strongest, being able to dominate the others, but also there's a certain amount of um, of consent of the dominated. Again, if we're looking at the Ameri- the way that the American state has basically reorganized capitalism in, uh, in the post-war period, it's not only through sort of. First of all, the simple—it's not through uh, colonizing the rest of the world. The U.S., of course, has had, uh, has to a certain extent, still colonies, uh, but that's not the main form of um, of hegemony. If you look at the relation between the U.S. and its main economic allies, or sort of the other nodes in the American uh, system, like the European countries, Japan, South Korea, it's not a system of of simple domination in that way. It's rather that. The U.S. state and the sort of the institutional um, framework it has set up with the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, to a certain extent, is is organized to a certain extent a, a mutual system of, of accumulation. So it's not only that uh, the American state has a relation to American capitalism, but also to to German capitalism, to uh, to Japanese capitalism, and the uh, the local capitalists in these other parts of the world, basically today, uh, the entire world, see their interest as safeguarded by by the American state. Um, right. Yeah. So, so um, here I'm, uh, I'm borrowing. You can probably hear uh, from uh, from Leo Panitch, uh, Sam Gindin, some of their work, uh, right. the centrality of the American uh, of the American state. But when we move into sort of more where where I uh, where I come in on my work is of course uh, looking at how does ideas play in here, um, and here things get a bit more uh, a bit more complicated because of course you know to to run such a, a successful uh, hegemony again you you don't only need brute force you also need a set of institutions and a set of uh, ideas, a coherent ideology uh, for uh, understanding how this world works and how different actors need to uh, need to act in this um, in this system. Again, if we go back to to the 19th century, to the sort of uh, the British Empire, it was uh, what you could call classical liberalism. Uh, you had an idea of based on uh, Ricardo, Adam Smith, uh, and so forth uh, of you know laissez-faire liberalism to a certain extent uh, of, you know, the state securing the free flow of capital and goods and a role of the state yeah, yeah, securing uh, securing free trade, securing stability of money uh, through the gold standard, and, and 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 we take that for granted now, you know. And our and we go to our, we take our economic history cl- courses, or if if you were lucky enough yeah. <laughs> to to even learn anything mm. about the beginnings of capitalism, which is now kind of just taken for granted, and now we just have this like gross, <laughs> this like gross Austrian style way of understanding about utility preferences and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And in a in an odd way, Ricardo and Adam Smith are so much more sophisticated. Sophisticated and far more in line with, say, a Karl Marx than uh, than a you know a Friedrich, a Friedrich Hayek or some of these other sort of um, 
other co- other uh, economists that are cosplaying Friedrich Hayek these days because even they aren't as sophisticated as Friedrich Hayek. We're just we're, we're dumbing down the economics well, profession Hayek generation is, by generation. Hayek is a pretty sophisticated guy. He was, yeah, he was. And so now we've just got these cosplayers, you know, who just sort of play Hayek on Twitter. And uh, but Adam Smith and Ricardo were quite a bit more sophisticated than that, and yet uh, they were they were just good uh, ideologues in their own right, sort of sh- uh, speaking out against some of the other trends and economic economic and political thought, you know, there was mercantilism and, and other forms of protectionism and sort of gold centered, uh, you know, empire building projects that you saw in France and Spain and elsewhere. And here, here come these two plucky, you know, these two plucky, uh, aristocrats, uh, from Scotland and elsewhere, um, you know, arguing that no, no, no kings and queens out there who rule with an iron fist, you should actually yeah. let these these uh, squirrely little untrustworthy traders come and go as they wish and trade things inside and outside your kingdom. Because in the end, that's good for you. And that, that was a wild idea. It was a wild idea. Yeah, yeah that, was, uh, that was crazy in a lot of ways. And also yeah. sort of, uh, again... Adam Smith is someone who's been um, yeah, co-opted by the, yeah. the dumbed-down Hayek of our time. But if, if you look at him, he was uh, – I think he saw himself as sort of an, an anti-elitist in, the, in a certain way. You know, he was uh, – you know, um, and well, you uh, have you know, to. he wanted to have free, free – he wanted free trade in order to, uh, you know, undermine the sort of economic powers of his day. Um, that's, exa- that's exactly right. I think, I think that's the piece that I wanted to bring out is that, is that look, I'm not championing Adam Smith here or, or free trade in, in that way. I think it was naive and it's very uh, outdated and old-fashioned and outmoded in, in, the, in the world of, of you know, contemporary complex global capitalist order. But that's just to say that, you know, to, we, in order to think about this concept of interregnum and how, how crucial ideas and, and the material relations in these institutional frames of power and class expression, all these things play out today, we need to understand how Adam Smith and his, his sort of crew, his cadres, how their thought and their institutional power and influence radically transformed that society. Right, because we naturalize that. Yeah, and 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 I think yeah, yeah, and and I think it's also if we look at economic ideas and how um, you know how they how they play out. I think it's also it's the central idea is that what we think of as economic interest is you know they're not given. Uh, you know, um, exactly. If exactly. you ask any, uh, you know, um, if you could take the Marxist one-on-one course, you, you would. Um, you know, you know how do capitalists act? Of course, they act to uh, to further their own interest. What are their political interests? Well, it's uh, maximizing profit. That's easy, of course. The problem is, how do you maximize profit? Of course, profit is uh, comes from invest. You know, it, it's basically money today that you make from uh, investment. Money tomorrow that you make from investments today. The problem, of course, about tomorrow is that. That's uncertain territory. You don't know, you know, what's going to make a profit tomorrow. So in order to understand and to navigate this sort of future world, you need ways of analyzing the world, of understanding it. And that's basically where sort of ideas come in. And when we're looking at, of course, I'm looking with Gramsci more on the political side of it. This also means that uh, the sort of the the interests of the capitalist class, even if we can say on a very, very basic level, it is, uh, you know, making as much money as possible, uh, as possible, uh, you know, maximizing profit. How you do that is, it's not given. Uh, and if we look at, uh, if we look back through history, we can say that, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, centuries almost, uh, major American capitalists thought that it was in, in, in their class interest, uh, to have protectionism, to have strong industry protection. Then later uh, they converted and said, oh, it's our class interest to protect uh, free trade, to have global free trade, uh, including free trade of most American goods. And it's, you know, it's when you get into the, that sort of uh, nuances, you see that, that this sort of idea of maximizing profit only gets you so far. And, uh, you know, there's always another, uh, another layer. And basically you, th- that layer is the realm of economic ideas, of ideology. I think it's also where I, uh, where I use Gramsci, um, and where, where I think he's, he's very useful because I, 
I think with the new Gramscian tradition, especially some of the people from, from the so-called Amsterdam school, Keith van der Peel, uh, mm. Barton Appledorn, who, who look very much at elites. Um, and um, the, the importance here is that when you look at elites, ideology and ideas also play a role. Yeah. Most, yeah. Um, yeah, again, most traditional Marxists, Marxist scholars here take sort of, uh, again, the class interests of the elite of the capitalist class as a given. But if you look at it, it's, it's actually quite variable over time. Yeah, it, it has to be constructed in a very intentional yeah. way. Keys van der Pyl's yeah, yeah. The Atlantic Ruling Class is kind of the seminal work here, along with uh, some of these others that you've mentioned. And it, it really it discussed how it, at the turn of the century, this Atlantic ruling class that would, would usher in various transformations and hegemony and, and various uh, power blocks that would emerge before, during, and after the World Wars, they were formed in very intentional and, and, and like historically traceable ways, like we can actually like these aren't just, you know, abstract capitalist relations, you know, that Marx wrote about in Capitals Volume 1, 2 and 3. These are these are historical events with with people who have names, right? Often, yeah. you know, they 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 had they had addresses and they and they talked to each other, and we have their letters and and, and the institutions and the relationships that they formed uh, became really decisive in terms of in terms of forming the world order. And I think this is something I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, and I, I love this that we're we're going here in in such uh, explicit detail. Is that you know we really need to to go beyond these abstract relations of production, this kind of Marxological approach that a lot of you know sophisticated I think Marxists take, and we need to get into the historical nitty gritty of how these how these projects, these hegemonic projects, are actually formed. So I'll let you finish your thought there, but let's let's dive into uh, this more tra- this traditional periodization, if you will, the one that you're sort of uh, responding against. Yeah, because of course this leads to the, the traditional periodization. I think where we need to uh, we need to have that in mind when we look at you know what I'm arguing. Um, of course, uh, you know we talked about classical liberalism uh, before the 19th century that broke down, First World War, the whole uh, that whole thing, and then we sort of then we got the post-war um, the post-war settlement, the post-war order again where. The capitalist world was uh, reorganized by Americans. Basically, I guess the sort of the post-war compromise could be seen as a, a globalization of, uh, of the New Deal. This sort of, again, class compromise coming out of the Great Depression with a new form of, uh, of capitalism with, the, you know, on, on the political side, a greater role for the state. On the sort of more economic side, uh, the Fordist mode of production big integrated companies and mass production. This was sort of globalized, spread out uh, through the world. Uh, again, the capitalist world, which was only uh, you know, a portion of the world uh, at that point. And on the economic ideal side of that, um, of course, we had the sort of uh, the Keynesian hegemony. Keynesianism stepped into this sort of social compromise with a sort of a, a proposition of, of a win-win situation where you could, the state could go in and maximize growth, maximize output, which would lead to a situation where you could have rising profits for, for capitalists and rising real wages and a welfare state for workers. So basically, it was sort of, Keynesianism became a, a language of integrating this class compromise into a, a mode of economic governance. And ha- happy times for 30 years uh, after after the war. This worked very well. You had uh, you know high high levels of economic growth, GDP growth, high level of real wage increases. You had uh, welfare states uh, in some places you know very expansive, like Scandinavia. Uh, Germany, uh, some places um, less so, but still, like in the U.S., you you had real welfare increases for regular people. Um, of course, this was until the 70s. Then the system came into crisis. You had the oil shocks. You had the you know the general uh, crisis, malaise of the 1970s. Out of that rose neoliberalism with Reagan and Thatcher. Yeah, I think people have a sort of um, 
pretty good understanding of, of neoliberalism. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think they, I think they know what comes next. It defines, yeah, yeah, yeah. it defines yeah. the hellscape, uh, you know, that shapes, that shapes their, their life trajectories in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. Present and company course, included. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we had the 2008 crisis. Um, yeah. And after that, nothing really happened. And I think that, that was where, where I stepped in. I started the, uh, my research in, uh, 2012, I think I started my uh, my PhD, and and that was in a general uh, period where you had this. Uh, there was a book uh, coming out, I think, in '11, um, by Colin Crouch called "The Strange and Undeath of Neoliberalism." And of course, yeah. when yeah. Uh, and that title really says a lot. First of all, the sort of the non-death uh, is, of course, because we all expected that. You know, neoliberalism, you know, it was clearly responsible for the sort of, uh, this sort of, uh, deregulated uh, financial capitalism it was clearly responsible for, you know, the global financial crisis, for an increase in inequality. So of course, you know, we would expect to see, you know, a paradigm shift, the new hegemony, uh, turn back to, uh, you know, some sort of, yeah, more regulated capitalism, but, Nothing really happened. It didn't happen. Yeah. Chris Harmon wrote a book called Zombie Capitalism around the same time. Um, a number of Marxists were sort of uh, waiting with great expectations, but on the other hand, also pretty pessimistic about these the sort of you know class dynamics of neoliberalism shifting around and neoliberalism is dead long live neoliberalism i believe at least at least uh, Slavoj Žižek at least parroted that if not came up with it um, it's just this kind of condition that we're currently in right now and i think this interregnum is this is this kind of uh, odd piece of jargon that we're going to talk about next but we don't even have to explain it for for listeners to understand it it's just this idea that you look around you and everything's collapsing and nothing works anymore nothing works well nothing works for us i should say it works quite well for the billionaire class <laughs> but uh and, and, and anyone who can stuff their mouth full of gold you know yeah yeah but i'm not sure it really works for them either but yeah basically yeah. this was just where i started when i started doing my research this piece actually started as a sort of a compare comparison between uh, 2008 and uh, the 1970s crisis and you know where i wanted to see that you know to show the differences how it was you know we had this non-paradigm shift or whatever, but as I as you know, uh, went into the sort of uh, the developments and the sources, I, I just got this sort of weird feeling of this. You know, this really feels a lot more like the 70s that uh, than than I thought. Uh, you know, because if if we went back to the 70s, you know. There was no sort of uh, just like a collapse of uh, of uh, Keynesianism and then introduction of, of neoliberalism. It took a decade. You know, you started with the breakdown of Bretton Woods in uh, 71 and the oil crisis in 73. And it was that you weren't elected until uh, 79. And it took, uh, you know, uh, uh, it took quite a while for uh, sort of a consensus to form around, uh, around neoliberalism. Uh, so I Try to work a bit with these uh, with these parallels uh, to you know go more back in to see because again we're used to uh, when we write the history of neoliberalism we go back to you know to Hayek and to the Montpellierin society and and when you look at it that way look at it, look at it backwards then it's you know it makes perfect sense you know first they made these ideas then they waited for the crisis and then the crisis proved an opportunity to put them into um, into practice but if you go back to the 70s you know this wasn't the way it played out it was much more chaotic it was much more contested um, if you look at, you know, if you step back into 1978, uh, it wouldn't look like, you know, this is a, you know, the, the market liberalism is about yep. to make a major comeback. People thought that was crazy. People thought, you know, Thatcher was a crank. He was seen as a, you know, as a weirdo, much, just as much as a Corbin or McDonald yeah. is today. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was seen as a fanatic, right? Not, not, not someone who sort of uh, is upholding, you know, uh, common sense or the status quo, like you know she would, she would be sort of pre conceived of later on. But she was a fanatic, and people inside her own Tory party thought thought as much. Uh, and then, and then at other times, they thought that she she wasn't fanatical enough. And so, you know, it's just th these things these things shift uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so basically. This is where the, the idea of, uh, of 
of interregnum comes in. This idea of, uh, you know, there is a period of confusion after uh, the old king dies, uh, after the breakdown of consensus. Uh, it takes a while for a new consensus to, to reemerge. This was the case in the 70s. But um, again, when Gramsci was writing, it was uh, in the interwar, the interwar period, it was a Bit of the same, uh, you know, the sort of the the world had the the liberal world uh, order had broken down with basically with the First World War and the attempts at reviving it in the aftermath of the war with the gold standard and, and reintroduction of uh, laissez-faire capitalism failed miserably in, in the Great Depression. So there was this like basically there were two decades of just utter confusion and this is a period that Gramsci. Describe in his uh, in his quote that you started with in the Interregnum, you know, the new everyone's quoting it right now. You know, uh, the old is dying and the new cannot be born. So this was, you know, I think can we actually think a bit more systematically about this? You know, what is it? What sort of uh, criteria can we set up for these periods? Because in um, in political economy, we have a lot of a lot of work about how hegemony works, how these uh, paradigms, set of ideas, uh, hegemonic ideologies work. But in some ways, the sort of the periods in between them has been completely under theorized. People haven't. It's just, you know, yeah, the old system breaks down and new one arises. They, they call that there's a, there's some some critics of, you know, various forms of IR theory that, that use theories of world order. They call that the Pez dispenser model, right? You just, yeah. you know, a Pez dispenser, you have those in, uh, in Denmark, the little candy dispensers. They have like a little cartoon head on them. You sort of pull the lever and a little piece of candy pops out and you pull a lever and then another piece of candy pops out. You pull the lever again, then another piece. Oh, well, these pieces of candy are, uh, you know, various hegemonic blocks case you missed the metaphor but uh, it's the pez dispenser model and it's just sort of it's uh, this post hoc uh, after the fact sort of you know um uh, rationalization of of well yeah of course american hegemony followed the british one you know it's anglo it makes sense right like but there's nothing inevitable about nothing inevitable about that and maybe we should take it back really quickly to the root uh, of, of where interregnum comes from. This is, I don't know. I mean, I haven't studied this, but I, I, I only uh, assume uh, that my extensive uh, watching of, of Game of Thrones and other highly factually uh, correct historical accounts of uh, <laughs> kingdoms and, and queens uh, that we're talking about in between uh, the various kings. reigns of kings and queens. Yeah. And this was, a high, this was often a bloody time. This was a time where, where people... We're sort of uh, making various moves for power and trying to get their niece or nephew or or what have you in various positions in order to to rise to the throne. Various um, ruling families rose and fell, uh, you know, inaugurating hundreds of years of Tudor reign or whatever have you. I'm not schooled up, but versed up enough in the <laughs> in the histories of kings and queens. Mostly because I don't think there should be kings and queens. So who the fuck do I care? No, that's uh, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> one of the one of the smart things that that you did. You got you got rid of uh, the king uh, while you while you had the the time in the U.S. There was a certain uh, there was a certain period where you could uh, you know chop their heads off mm. and get away with it. But uh, there was a few, uh, you know, backwards countries in Europe where we didn't get to do that. So <laughs> now we're stuck with them forever. Well, well um, we, we traded, uh, we traded the King for, you know, JP Morgan. Uh, that's that. There's, those are our new overlords today. Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope you are thoroughly enjoying my interview with Runa Muller-Stahl. We're talking about interregnum and some of the opportunities that the collapse and uh, zombification of neoliberalism might present to the socialist movement today. But this is the part of the program where I ask you to become one of the 400-some-odd patrons of the Dead Pundit Society and DPS Media and support this project with your material resources. As most of you know by now, we are entirely supported by the generosity of our patrons. We cannot do this without you. DPS is free to listen to each week, but it is certainly not free to make. So if you listen to DPS on a regular basis, if you have benefited in any way from our episodes over the past two and a half years, I encourage you to head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. Not only will you benefit from the warm and fuzzies of knowing that you're supporting the New Left Agenda, but you'll get access to our weekly B-sides where we go 
deep, deep, deep in depth on some of the most pressing and cutting edge topics of the day. So you guys are not going to want to miss that. Head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button. All right, back to the show. Uh, but so it's just it's it's an interesting thing to to think back about the root of interregnum in, in a very literal sense, and to think about our our present moment today, and the way that various economic and political and social blocks and fractions of of class power are vying to try to remake the world in their own image and try to to marshal the institutional and the class and the political forces necessary to do that. I mean, I think I, I read. I read the Democratic Party primaries in the U.S. in exactly that way, right? Each candidate representing in their own way a a newly emergent power block of political, social, economic class forces that are trying to gain expression in the state and then vie for for some form of dominance. Um, We could go, you know, I could go candidate by candidate. Maybe that would be a really interesting thing to do in the, in the, in the, in the coming debates or something like that. But, but that's kind of what you're, what you're pointing to. And you're, 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 in some ways in in these, uh, in these interactions again, because what in normal times on sort of hegemonic times, uh, you have, you know, consensus on on sort of the parameters of the debate you know you're allowed to debate within uh, you know these parameters and we don't go uh, outside of them and you you'd often have like a left and a right variant of this uh, you know in the post-war era you know even the right-wing parties they would also present welfare gains uh, real wage increases uh, nixon famously said we're all keynesians now in the 70s yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. same in uh, under the period of neoliberal hegemony you know you had the social democrats would also offer basically uh, yeah, neoliberal policies with a smiley face on it but of course in order to have that sort of hegemony it doesn't come it doesn't come naturally it's just not just something that happens it needs work and it needs either uh, sort of co-option of uh, opponents or uh, the sort of the marginalization of them. And of course, these sort of what happens in an interregnum with the breakdown of consensus is basically that these mechanisms of exclusion, they break down. And this means that, uh, again, in the U.S., it's very clear that, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, traditional same elite has no way of controlling the political processes anymore. Again, you have Donald Trump, but you also have uh, someone like Bernie Sanders, who represents like a real material threat to uh, the ruling powers, but they're unable to stop him. Again, the same uh, in the same in Europe. Again, you have Corbyn, you have even, you know, of course, uh, it didn't play out so well with the Syriza victory, but Basically, uh, you know, the entire system of global governance of the American state has been, uh, you know, just uh, maniacally focused on keeping communists out of power in Europe. And they've been completely successful from 1945 onwards until 2015. Suddenly, uh, you know, revamped uh, communist party actually got into power. That is, you know, this, you know, these exclusion mechanisms, they are not working anymore. And this creates... This creates an openness. This creates, you know, because um, suddenly, you know, you can, it's not just like uh, two flavors of, uh, of the same sort of juice or whatever. Uh, suddenly there's actually real stakes at um, yeah. We're not, playing. Yeah, we're not, we're not debating about, you know, in, in, in the American idiom, we're not debating about tax credits. We're talking about fundamental system change, and and that's going on all across Europe and uh, Britain and across the world as well, where you have these populist kind of you know movements that are they're rising up from the from the left and the right. Not to give any, not to give any grist for the uh, horseshoe theory mill, but uh, but but the, the the question is the, the the point here is that the center cannot hold. The center is increasingly extreme, to borrow a phrase from Tariq Ali, the extreme center, and and it becomes very obviously so extreme, right? That the center is there's nothing really center center about it, right? It's uh, it's it's an extremist expression of neoliberalism, and such that only the the far right and the socialist left 
have any answers because they're the only ones who are talking about uh, various political and economic shifts. So we've talked about the the conditions of the interregnum. You write about these, and I want to lay these out just so we have this, and then we'll talk about the various power blocks that are that are vying to fill this vacuum right now in this period of interregnum. Uh, the first one you talked about absence of a stable ideological consensus in the in the elite, and I think this is as clear as as day in, in whatever national context you find yourself in. There is no stable ideological consensus. Big big ideas and structural questions are are suddenly on the table in a really big way, uh, which is, I think is what a lot of us find so both exhilarating and and also, let's be honest, fucking, fucking terrifying sometimes. <laughs> you know. Number two, you've got the presence of several competing hegemonic projects. Uh, look no further than, say, you know, the UK, where we have this kind of far-right xenophobic economic nationalism on the table. And, and as as well as a kind of internationalist socialist uh, approach to remake uh, the kind of national international relationships in the Corbyn project, and, and which is also expressing itself in a variety of ways. You have uh, left wing nationalists that are that are that are coming about. I think in a really confused and confusing sort of way. But again, that confusion is just another symptom of of this interregnum. Um, anything to say on those two before we before we move on? Uh, no, but I just think that the sort of the confusion in the elite is very real. I think there's a tendency, uh, I think a healthy tendency to, uh, when you hear about these, uh, you know, uh, billionaires talking about inequality, uh, to, you know, just see them as, you know, cynical uh, people masking uh, their own interest. And that's to a certain extent correct. But I also think that there are a large part of the capitalist class seeing that, you know, the status quo is very dangerous. They want mild social reforms, but they don't have any way of getting there. It's just like it's very, very hard to discipline uh, an entire capitalist class. It was, uh, you know, it was done in uh, in the 1940s. But today, you know, you just need a couple of rogue uh, oligarchs uh, like Mercer and the Koch brothers, and then you can wreck an entire political party, you know. Uh, the Republicans in the U.S. You know they're they're crazy. The same with the uh, Aaron Banks in the in the U.K. with Brexit. It's like you know we have a tendency to see class cohesion in you know in the elite in the capitalist class as a given, but it's not. And when you don't have it, it creates uh, it creates chaos, but it also creates opportunity. You know there's you know the sort of the, the generalized class interest is is asleep at the wheel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I think it's important to see the fractious nature of the ruling class and the power block that exists or doesn't exist. Uh, because, because, you know, that, that way, I think it gives us hope. It gives us a little bit of hope yeah, yeah. for God's sakes. We need some hope, Runa. I mean, for fuck's sake, it, it, you yeah, know, yeah. it's one of the, one of the themes that I talked about with Nick Kiersey last week about, you know, how do we talk about neoliberalism without falling prey to this hyper academic way of framing it as this kind of all encompassing everything and everyone is now neoliberal. Uh, because, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, you know, move forward on that basis. I, we, we should all just, uh, you know, find our, our, our drug of choice and, uh, and, and turn, tune out and turn off or whatever for, for the next 40 years until, until the sun, uh, you know, boils our planet because otherwise, yeah, I, I don't see a point in all of this. Um, let's talk about the last two before I get uh, too doom and gloom here. <laughs> Pull me off the ledge, Runa. All right. Number three, institutional continuity but decreasing effectiveness of institutions and policies and this one is ah this one is so good because that's everyone's feeling that i just saw a video that's circulating it's gone viral by jennifer lawrence actress here in the u.s jennifer lawrence j law from from um the hunger games Right. Uh, talking about, you know, I mean, it was this it's neither left nor right. It's not about hating the Republicans, not about hating the Democrats. It's, it's understanding and acknowledging that our institutions, our state that we pay for. It's like troubling taxpayer ideology there, J-Law, a little bit, a little bit of right wing populism sneaking into your wokeness anyway. Uh, our state that we pay for doesn't work for us. That's the problem. And that's exactly what you're pointing to here. That there's this, there's a, there's an institutional continuity, but everyone, so everyone's sort of playing the game and playing along, and yet people on all sides are sort of acknowledging, in in their in their deepest heart of hearts, they feel that this, like, why are we doing this? This isn't working for anyone. 
Yeah, uh, I think that's also why you had the sort of the literature and and the, the non-death of neoliberalism because you haven't seen any big changes. But in some ways, it's also because the system is you know there aren't any the, the lack of consensus also means that the sort of the tweaks to the system that could make it work are also basically impossible uh, to make and. Like right now, you have like we're supposed to be on the on the top of of an economic boom, but you know no one feels it. You know we have like a as a zero uh, zero level um, interest rates. We have the uh, you know QE, so it's like you know you're in a car uh, in the first gear, just like the speeder is um, just maxed out, and you're still like barely making uh, twenty miles an hour. So it, it, it's this feeling yeah. um, again. And it, it's the same with in the seventies where people were, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of uh, the mechanisms of uh, demand management and the sort of uh, the political instruments were only really perfected or sort of used radically in the in the nineteen seventies, but they just they didn't work in the same way as they as they used to. So it's it's that yeah general situation I'm pointing to that. Yeah, yeah. There's this increasing malaise, and this last one you talk about is maybe perhaps. Um it's more subterranean, if you will, right now. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind, but it's happening. And perhaps it's more aspirational. Number four, you talk about as a condition of interregnum to understand and recognize it is there's a, there's a vast realignment of social forces. And like, you know, if, if, if we didn't really stop and think about this, if we didn't pause for a moment to reflect on our current situation, we might miss this one because it happens uh, quite subtly. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are new to the socialist left. When I say new, I mean, they've entered, you know, in the past two, three, four years in, in the in the boom times, if you will. They'd be forgiven if if they, you know, kind of scoffed at this one. Like, pff, what are you talking about? Realignment of social forces. Things are just as bad as they've always been. And it's I think you're, you're right to point to this kind of uh, almost insidious backdoor way that the, the social forces are subtly realigned during these periods of interregnum in ways that we, we often maybe don't immediately recognize or we take for granted. So talk to us about this one. Basically, it's where politics in, um, in normal times and hegemonic times take the form of basically two competing blocks, a center left and a center right, or another uh, division, then it's in uh, these, you know, in these realignments, you see the sort of the shift of the coalitions that can form the basis of a sort of a, of a majority. Of, yeah, majority. And of course, a hegemonic project means more than just an electoral strategy, but an electoral strategy is, is part of it. Again, in, in the UK, you can see with, you know, with Brexit, it's sort of realigning, you know, where does the, where does the working class go? Where do, um, different sorts of young, downwardly mobile, uh, precarious uh, workers go? Uh, you know, where do the, the urban well-educated elites go, you know, you, you have these sort of, a lot of the important parts of politics really goes on within the sort of, within the blocks. Uh, again, the Sanders campaign is probably the clearest example of this. Uh, you know, in some ways it's, you can say that it's more important, uh, the more important election in 2020 is basically who wins the democratic nomination. It says more about the future of uh, politics than, you know, whoever wins uh, the eventual election. You know, it's, uh, you know, the redefinition of the Democratic Party, for instance, would have much greater importance than any sort of individual uh, election for president or a majority in the House or whatever. Uh, so it's these sort of, basically, you know, what it means to be left and right rather than whether or not the center-left or the center-right wins any individual election. And again, this happened in the 70s. Again, again, you know, Thatcher um, and Reagan, they took over these uh, parties that had been dominated by, of course, they were hard-right ideologues, but they've been dominated by a more, you know, centrist class compromise position. And they sort of, they just completely excluded them from uh, from power and, cre you know, recreated the respective political parties into vehicles of basically uh, unbridled class power. And yes, <laughs> if that happens uh, again with the, hopefully with the, a different class in, in control, then that, that, that could be a very important event. Uh, and that's a different form of politics than again, the 2004 election, you know, whether or not you had Bush or, uh, or Kerry, you know, or Obama or, or McCain in some way. 
Yeah, I mean, just think about a figure like Mitt Romney. I don't even know if that's if that's a guy that in Denmark or in Europe you guys even remember. But you know, such a such a just. A, I, I follow uh, American politics far yeah. too much. So uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm. Uh, I presume most of my DPS audience would 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 do be the same way. So yeah, Mitt Romney or a, a John Kerry or, or you know these just these just these these you know these are just stuffed suits, right? Representing the stale you know uh, stable ideology. Of course, you know in twenty two thousand twelve that was already they were past due, right? They they were like as I like to say, uh, quoting. Uh, Haley Joel Osmond from the Sixth Sense, you know, uh, there, there. I see dead people. Like I see, I see uh, zombie, you know, neoliberalism. You know, uh, they, they <laughs> they're everywhere all the time, but they don't know they're dead. They, they they think they're alive. They walk around and they talk to us. You know, like like you and I. Uh, yeah, that that's kind of how it was in 2012. Um, and we all sort of knew it. And now, you know, we it, it took a. It took a, a a Brooklyn Jew from Vermont, you know, in his seventies to come along, and 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 convince us that uh, that that a, that a different path was possible in some senses to be a little cynical about it, um, which is exciting, but also like it is, and it also like what I try in my in my argument is also to to reopen uh, the sort of the the contingencies of of history again because uh, if we look look back at uh, again the rise of neoliberalism in, in the 70s and again a lot of history had this tendency to create you know to picture you know what happened as the only possible worlds but again going back to to that period you had like strong countercurrents uh, of uh, especially uh, sort of a reinvigorated socialist reformism or what you could say you had a radicalization of, of social democracy with figures like in the uk like tony ben in france like uh, like Mitterrand, who had like different strategies for getting out of the crisis you know Mitterrand actually won the election 81 and on a, on a very very radical uh, slate of uh, slate of reforms, like far far to the left of anything that Corbyn or Sanders uh, or Podemos or anyone would uh, would put forward today. And and but when you look at the sort of why they lost back then, it's you know it's mostly politics. It's you know when you uh, Mitterrand's policies were ineffective because it was only in France that this sort of left won, whereas. In the U.S., especially the U.S. is very central again because it is the center of yeah global capitalism. Uh, it's uh, the hegemonic uh, the hegemonic state, and so basically uh, a, a redefinition here. You know, it's only post hoc that you can see you know what of these sort of projects are will eventually be successful. There was nothing inherent in neoliberalism that made it the only solution to the crisis of the 1970s. The same now, it's like, you know, you have several uh, ways of getting out of the crisis, several ways of sort of uh, recreating the economy, getting it out of this sort of impasse where we are now. And it's basically, you know, it's in a lot of ways, of course, it's, you know, there are, you know, Economic structures play a role. It's just like not just uh, you know complete volatilism, but there are several ways of doing this. And and I think looking back at economic history and looking back at these earlier periods of interaction gives this feeling of you know of openness. There are several um, there are several avenues. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think there's, there's it's a, scary. There, there's a response that I I you know I'm. I'm I'm sort of challenging that has emerged, I think, amongst a lot of people who, you know, might be listeners of DPS, uh, people who find themselves highly skeptical of this uh, discourse oriented form of left liberalism that places ideas in the driver's seat of political and social and economic change. And 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 people are are right, absolutely right, and justified they, they right, to be yeah. skeptical of an idea centered approach to social, political, and economic change. We are, after all, uh, some form of Marxists, and uh, you know that means a lot of different things to a lot of people. But to me, that just means that we're centering political economy, we're centering uh, class forces, forces, and the relations of capital and capitalism, you know, in the state and in society, in the realm of of culture and ideas, and always connecting that to to very uh you know materialist projects ultimately because as as we've right pointed to just to put a very quick gloss on it 
the ideas were present in the 1970s in some senses, I would say some of the ideas, probably not enough of the ideas, but anyway, in some senses, the ideas were present The Tony Benz and the people like that, what, what you've called in your piece. Um, let's see, you, you referred to that as uh, sort of a socialist reformism, reformism, right? So state led industrialization, a mixed economy, um, intervention in the welfare state, this kind of uh, you know, we'd have to control and rein in capital with capital controls, wage earner funds, things like that, uh, which could potentially set the stage for much more robust forms of socialism. Right. That was the that was the Benite Mitterrand and, and other expressions, you know, in other national, uh, you know, places. But but they ran aground on some of the material limitations to these projects and some of their uh, inadequacies and their their class and political uh, blocks at, in, in the face of these uh, global transformations in, in economic and, and political organization. And so just having the right ideas doesn't necessarily mean you're going to succeed. But but no, no, moment, you also have to win. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to win. And sometimes, but I think it is important to, uh, to see um, again, I've been working with like the Scandinavian experience of the wage earner funds uh, as well. And, you know, a lot of these ideas in the 70s failed because of politics. Uh, you know, it, there were political reasons for these failures. There, there's nothing, you know, it's not like uh, new, new, the neoliberal ideas that ended up winning the neoliberal mode. Like uh, monetarism in the early 80s was a failure in a lot of ways. It cost, uh, you know, uh, mass unemployment, um, but it was the but they, they were still successful in a lot of ways in its own terms. But they were successful because they managed to basically win politically to uh, yeah, completely exactly right. marginalize other responses that's and exactly right. you know, present themselves as yeah the common sense and and set that you know and enforce that through institutions uh, through monetary policy through financial globalization and other aspects, uh, but. Yeah, 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 and I mean that's absolutely. I wish we had uh, another three hours to talk about this. We're, we can carry this over to the B side here pretty soon for the patrons, and we will definitely do that. But what I like about our discussion right now is that we're placing ideas in, into their proper context, and 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 this is why you need history and you need contingency because it would be improper to say that ideas don't matter in history, just as it would be improper to say ideas always matter in history. I think, I think what you're pointing to is, is, is this, uh, you know, this, this claim that, well, sometimes in history, ideas matter more than others. They just do. They matter yeah, more yeah, than yeah. others and who has them and what, and what the ideas are sort of uh, oriented towards, right? What, what trajectories lead from those ideas and how they can or cannot link up with existing uh, institutions or or proposed institutional transformations, right? And 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 that's I think that's the real key stakes here. Is this kind of um, arc of history, vulgar liberalism, you know, that that praises the primacy of ideas, you know, to the ex- to the to the expense of all else, materialism or otherwise, is is phony. The way to to properly historicize and and, and render the realm of ideas a material force in the world is to understand at what junctures and at what points and how exactly ideas begin to matter and this is where the interregnum uh comes to play yeah yeah and then yeah and 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 what they do is sort of they act as the glue that bind class forces together and this is not only the case and i think you know most marxists most socialists recognize that this is the case for us for the working class you know <laughs> you need a, a party with an ideology and you know because you can't co- you can't coordinate anything without having a set of shared uh, analysis shared ideas shared goals but this is also the case of uh, the capitalist class you know you need coordination you need a goal in order to create a historical block basically yeah so let's finish up here really quickly with the three vying hegemonic projects the three projects that are vying for hegemony here in our post-2008 interregnum. You write about austerity neoliberalism, which is the one that we all know too well. It's sort of limping on. We're not quite sure if it uh, it even has the juice, so to speak, to, to continue much longer. Uh, and yeah. Then there's, of course, economic nationalism. 
which expresses itself in a variety of ways, national industrial capitalism, uh, protectionist models, national deregulation, pro-business state intervention. So it's this kind of odd uh, combination of this sort of uh, faux economic nationalist populism combined with a sort of pro-business capitalism. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways we haven't seen it like it, it's there. And uh, of course, when it comes to it's always easier when you look back to say, OK, this was the project. It's a bit harder today. Because it's, you know, this is basically, this is the position of, of Steve Bannon, of, uh, I would say, uh, uh, Le Pen in France with the artist formerly known as Front National. Uh, and so it, it hasn't really been made a reality yet, but I think this, you know, it's, the ideas are basically there. And I think if, if we look at the numbers, you know, globalization is basically stopping, stuttering. It, it, has been doing that since the crisis, basically. This trend for an ever greater integration of world market has slowed down, at least. Uh, and the latest round of trade wars is not going to make this easier. So I think that, you know, the potential is there for this sort of uh, pro-business populism, even if it hasn't actually won yet, because, you know, the Trump campaign ran as uh, economic nationalism, but it's, it's not been able to govern or has no interest in governing us as an economic nationalist, at least except his trade policies, which are can have great impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do what I've I've said it on this this show multiple times, and I hope I don't have to say it again. That that Steve Bannon Bannonism is an incredibly dangerous <laughs> uh, ideology. It's a it's a danger in terms of how it has the power and the ability and the rhetorical force and potentially the institutional power backing it to gain large fractions of the working class. And it's, it's, it's scary. I think that a lot of leftists would, scary, hear, yeah. would hear someone like a Steve Bannon talk about the problems, the structural issues that face uh, the world today. And, and they might find themselves nodding along if they didn't know that, that was fucking Steve Bannon, Bannon, you know, articulating these ideas because they sound a lot like socialists. But of course, the trajectories and the political prescriptions are very, very different, <laughs> you know, uh, which, which yeah, is yeah. what makes it very dangerous and scary. Uh, there's another form. Yeah, yeah, so, you- yeah, yeah. so it's basically like we still have to see the full potential of this, but I think it's potentially it's a very dangerous strategy and we sh- it can, you know, yeah, uh, it can easily uh, gain. You know, huge, the, the the moment someone finds the right uh, way of formulating this, it's uh, yeah, 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 it, 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 and it, yeah. I mean, it seems that the ruling class is is quite skeptical of Steve Bannon right now. At least fractions, yeah. various institutional and capital uh, fractions are 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 skeptical of Steve Bannon right now and his his project. Uh, but uh, you know, God, God forgive me, uh, Runa, for for making this play. But uh, you know. Fractions of German capital were quite skeptical of Hitler and his posse when they when they were uh, you know vying for for power and and pulling their thuggish ways on the streets uh, all across Germany as well. And then suddenly, you know, in the midst of a great great crisis, he becomes uh, their savior in a, in a sense, right? And so you could see this shift happen. And I think the people on the left are talking quite a lot about this. Let's talk about the last one to wrap up here. You talk about left populism, which is a wage-led growth, mixed economy, welfare state, financial regulation, uh, limited forms of nationalization, redistributive tax reforms. This is, of course, the left populism that sort of flirts with socialism of, say, a Jeremy Corbyn type, certainly a Bernie Sanders and other um, other correlates in the Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think if, I, if I'd written uh, th- this today, I would probably have uh, called it like a class struggle uh, social democracy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like because that. in some ways it's this sort of, uh, uh, you know, programmatically moderate, but, you know, strategically radical uh, form, new form of yeah, social democracy that in some ways are, Again, if you compare it to social democrats of the, of the 1970s, in a lot of ways, again, if you look at the programmatic points, you know, much to the, to the right of what you, what you saw back then, you know, the pre-neoliberal social democracies. But uh, if you look at the strategic orientation, these new parties, you know, they're, you know, they're radical, they're fighting, you know, they're, uh, you know, yeah, embracing, uh, you know, class struggle, political struggle. So that's definitely, 
stuff going on there. And the full potential, again, we haven't seen it yet, but it's, you know, it's definitely there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that'll take us into the B side for sure. So, so I think people should uh, definitely, if you're an academic, you're academically inclined, or even if you're not, get a hold of this article. It is uh, stuck behind a paywall, I believe. Is that is that correct? Uh, you can uh, you can find it. Uh, I've put a, like a pirated version on my website, so it's. Uh Okay. We can link to that in the show description. Yeah, I'll uh-huh. definitely make that available for people here in the show show notes, and and people should check that out for sure. It's it's very readable. I think any any anybody, if you can keep up with DPS and, and the really uh, super smart guests that I have on here, if you can keep up with my guests, I think you can you can definitely uh, keep up with this this piece. It's well written, well argued, and it's and as I said, I mean, we're this is your you know what what, what is it? What's that? Uh, that that uh, it's it's an American show from from the 1970s. It's like uh, this is your life or whatever. It's, it's a <laughs> show where like they'd have somebody on and and like you know like uh, piece by piece they'd have somebody's uh, friend from high school or what. I don't know. I'm not old enough to even know what. Anyway, anyway, uh, this article, this article right here, this is your life, right? Like everyone is going to read this piece, and at least in some very visceral level, they're going to say, "Yeah, I get this. I feel this. I'm living this." hellscape right now yeah. uh so yeah it's it's highly nothing's related. working everything's depressing <laughs> yeah so except so, uh, bernie sanders except except some of the sparks and shoots right it's it, it is really exciting that's kind of what i want to convey right now is that we we are up against the wall so to speak but but all is not lost we are in this interregnum period where wherein i don't think we need to get uh pollyannish uh, but, uh, I think Nick, Nick made, uh, Kiersey last week made a call back to, 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 to a quote from one of my former guests, uh, that, uh, you know, we need to be sober without being drunk on our sobriety. And, uh, I think, uh, the being drunk on that our sobriety, being drunk on our sobriety at this point means that, uh, you know, that, you know, we're, we're, we're overly attuned to the, the neoliberal aspects of everything and such that, um, you know, we become so cynical that we can't see opportunity when it's smacking us in the fucking face. And, and, and we're in a moment right now where, uh, you know, not anything is impossible. We still have tremendous uh, obstacles ahead. There's no question that all of our paths are fraught with contradictions. And yet there are tremendous opportunities in this interregnum. So any parting words for the people on the A side before we switch over to the B side here, Runa? Uh, no, I think you summed it up pretty well. Uh, so uh, thanks for the debate. Yeah. yeah, I enjoyed this. Everybody check out Runa's work. We're going to take it over to the B side now. Talk much more explicitly about neoliberalism and what hold uh, neoliberal ideology does or does not have on uh, society, on global society. We're going to dig into Foucault. We're going to talk more explicitly about Foucaultians, how they, t- how they uh, talk about and frame uh, neoliberal discourse, and we're going to compare and contrast that with a perhaps more Gramscian approach uh, to thinking through the realms of hegemony and consent and coercion and all those types of things. Uh, if you're not a member of Dead Pundit Society, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today to get access to this coming B-side. It's going to be really good. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be a nice compendium to the chat that I had with Nick Kiersey last week on neoliberalism. Again, Runa Muller-Stahl, postdoc at University of Copenhagen, Department of Political Science. Always a fascinating guy. Thanks for joining us on DPS. Thank you. Thank you.